Hello, I'm Helena Gaspard from the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa. Together with our partners Canada 2020 and Global Progress, we launched the Recovery Project. The Recovery Project is about thinking ahead to the opportunities and challenges beyond the emergency response to the COVID-19 pandemic. It's about bringing forward a variety of perspectives and ideas to reinvigorate our economy, enhance institutions, and make better policy choices. Today, we're talking about recovery in global governance terms. Multilaterals such as the United Nations, the International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank have made calls to action, have monitored country developments, and have committed to supporting economic recovery. Recovery won't be happening in a vacuum. It will be informed by a country's governance practices. A country's governance structure is an expression of its values, its rules, and its conventions. In practice, governance impacts nearly every facet of a country's operations, from decision-making to politics and economy. How will governance arrangements impact courses for recovery? How can multilaterals best support recovery? And how will developing and established economies and democracies grapple differently as the world inches forward? Joining us today at the Recovery Project is Mitch O'Brien. Mitch is an expert in governments and parliaments and global development. He's worked across the globe in some of the world's most challenging countries to stabilize crisis situations. He collaborates with stakeholders and he helps to build sustainable democracies. Mitch has a deep knowledge of global multilateral institutions, having worked with international financial institutions, various multilaterals and international civil society organizations. Welcome, Mitch, and thank you for joining us at The Recovery Project. Good morning, Eileen. Good to be here. So, Mitch, to get us started, can you help us unpack the term governance? It's used so frequently and, you know, used in different ways and probably has different meanings to different people. So tell us how you understand it. This is a difficult one. To my mind, a government is a legitimate representative of the country, whereas governance itself is um, the process by which institutions and individuals interact in order to be able to empower the citizen within those countries. So governance is really the how-to or how does government go about making sure that citizens can live a kind of a full and positive life. Governments are important though because they're the main interface then with the international governance system. And it's all built from nation states and, and that's the building blocks that everything comes from originally. So Mitch, can you tell us about what the traditional roles of multilaterals are? Can you help paint a portrait of what this complex universe looks like? Well, maybe I can start from kind of the, the macro and then move down to the, the country level. We do see it at play on the international level as well. So when we talk about international governance, really what we're talking about are the multilaterals, and they can be the, the really big ones like all the different UN institutions and programs. They can be more regionally focused ones, like, say, the African Union or even the European Union. And then there are the international financial institutions, such as the World Bank and the WTO and the IMF. They're a little different to the multilaterals because the multilaterals are all based upon kind of one state, one vote sort of model, whereas the international financial institutions differ a little bit. And so the wealth or the level of development of a country often does impact upon the degree of influence they would have in the international financial institutions. And so the dynamic does differ based upon the governance design, even at the multilateral level. And then cross-cutting this is the international CSOs, which some derive their resourcing from the nation state, but often they would have independent or third-party financing. But because of the international nature and the issues they work on, 
they're able to kind of interface with the international financial institutions and the multilaterals in order to try and help shape policy and shape change. In terms of the country level, so countries generally act in their own interest, but different countries will define their own interests in different ways. Some define working together as being actually in their own interest and they're more inclined for, to multilateralism, particularly those countries that see some of these bigger platforms such as the UN as a mechanism to be able to work together to achieve results that they would not otherwise be able to do so by themselves. Or you see some countries don't see the international governance platforms that are out there as being the best way for them to actually achieve the interests of their nations. And often they're the larger ones that feel as if they're able to go it alone or derive less benefit from some of these international organizations. So Mitch, thank you very much for that helpful overview. So what I'm hearing from you then is that when we think about, say, global institutions or the way multilaterals are framed at a global level, we can think about them really in three parts. There are those from the financial perspective who are concerned with the economy, about making funds available, about supporting, say, economic development. And then we have the set of multilaterals that are focused on delivery of support, right? We think there about the United Nations and its associated branches, and they really deliver the feet on the ground. And then the third branch are the CSOs or the civil society organizations. And they tend to be the linkage with the country experience or the uh, civil society local group experience that becomes, you know, really quite important um, in so many of these instances. And so with that helpful overview, can you tell us a little bit about um, how multilaterals have tended to respond to pandemics, maybe looking back or, or thinking back, you know, to the last few, whether it be um, Ebola, SARS, et cetera, and how have multilaterals responded to the current pandemic? So is there something that we can learn? Has anything changed? And do we better know what works or what doesn't? We learned a lot from previous experience. And you could see that as soon as the and the present pandemic started to, to gain steam globally. And a lot of the ability of different countries to respond really is dependent upon their level of development and kind of whether they have the systems in place to be able to move rapidly to be able to address the issues. But it was, has been pretty clear from previous experience that it was important to be able that these sorts of pandemics and health crises see boundaries. So a multilateral approach to this has always been seen as being better, not only because the health crisis is not going to jump across a border, but also then enables us to be able to learn from each experience and also ensure that there is the proper resource allocation to be able to supplement what a country presently has, to be able to handle something that is kind of unforeseen. I think about, say, the Ebola response um, a couple of years ago, the whole notion of trying to contain the virus and then looking at how the developed world is then able to work with and help um, those developing countries where the virus is spreading. I think this is a prime example of the way in which the global community can early on identify a global threat and try and work together in order to be able to try and minimize its impact globally. In order to do that, you need to have these multilateral governance platforms for institutions in place in order to be able to kind of help identify that, but also facilitate both the flow of resources, the technical assistance, and the global support to be able to do it. One thing that's a little different about um, COVID, you know, it's still very much an evolving situation. But unlike, say, MERS or SARS or Ebola before us, those had the potential to be fully global pandemics. And what we're seeing with COVID, though, is that it really is touching upon all corners of the globe. 
and that does mean that a lot of the ways that we were able to support previously are being undermined. When you have a situation where countries which are providing technical assistance and financing for bolstering um, health services in um, kind of developing Africa and during the Ebola crisis, themselves are fighting COVID and, and trying to make sure that their economies don't fall into recessions. You know, Canada is a prime example of that. The dynamics are a little bit different this time just because of the speed of the transmission and um, how big a pandemic this really is. So when we're thinking about the speed and certainly the crisis and the emergency nature of this pandemic, can crises be opportunities to incentivize reform? So I'm thinking here about, frankly, conditions on aid or requiring, say, investments in sustainable technology or an improvement in emergency or resilience plans or enhanced legislative oversight to access funding or to have... um, say, a multilateral on the ground to support a country in its recovery from the pandemic. So are there opportunities here to encourage better outcomes? I think that with any situation, you can look at it as half glass full, half glass empty. And I think that, you know, we need to be able to try and look at it half glass full and, and learn some of the lessons from this so that we can apply them in future. In terms of our ability to be able to help deliver on the ground, Just thinking about this from a developing country perspective rather than a developed country like Canada, there's been debates over the years as to the best way to be able to deliver overseas development assistance in partnership with developing countries. And so we had the Paris Declaration and the ACAR Agenda for Action and the Bassan process. And what they were all doing kind of in the late 2000s, early 2010s, was kind of setting out this new paradigm for the way in which developing and developed countries can work together. And the main principles there were about ownership, inclusive partnerships, and making sure that they were delivery results. And central to all of this were two pillars. One was efforts to be able to build country systems, to be able to, for countries to be able to manage their own programming, and accurate and effective oversight and accountability to ensure that if there are overseas development assistance funds being used in a particular country, that country and the creditor are able to highlight um, the impact that those funds were able to achieve. All of this says that kind of governance at the local level is as important as governance at the international level. The um, country systems that we talk about, really, it's public sector reform and public financial management. It's about having the ability of a country to be able to take the funds from elsewhere, utilize their own ministries to be able to deliver services to their citizens. And what we're seeing is that the pandemic has come about so quickly that many of the developing countries around the world, sometimes they don't have the country systems in place to be able to respond in a way that we're seeing developed countries respond. The way that the international community is providing support There's a number of different modalities for delivery. The multilateral development banks, whether it's kind of the World Bank or the Inter-American Development Bank or the Asian Development Bank, predominantly like to use development financing or development projects. That's a situation where the funds are usually managed by the country themselves. And so wherever there's flexibility on those sorts of projects to be able to redirect them to the immediate COVID response, then that's happening. But in some countries, particularly fragile states, The governance systems or the country systems are just not strong enough yet to be able to handle this. And so you've got some great frontline delivery efforts that have been done by some of the multilaterals, such as the UN, for instance, and UNDP, 
as well as some of the international CSOs that are working hand in hand with local CSOs that could then deliver services in the short term. So it sounds like there's a lot to take in and certainly a lot to consider because things like public financial management reform or broad scale institutional reform, those are difficult in the best of times, right? Let alone in crisis situations and let alone in environments where your existing foundations are already either fragile or tenuous at best and where you might not have the resources, be they human, financial, et cetera, as a country to be able to stabilize that situation. So having you talk about the way multilaterals have to collaborate with countries to build country systems and to promote oversight and accountability at various levels is a really, I think, interesting way to think about it, that it's not only multilateral to government, but it's multilateral to, say, executive branch government, to parliament or or to the legislature, to civil society, and to those on the ground, even in the media, right, who are monitoring and who are thinking about and who are watching a lot of these developments take place. And so when we think about this multifaceted approach to crisis response and certainly to recovery, can you talk a little bit about bureaucracies? Because I think we often neglect that whole state apparatus and the importance of a sophisticated state apparatus to deliver services, to deliver emergency relief. And so thinking about it from a multilateral perspective, or even from the perspective of CSOs, how do you engage civil servants? How do you engage a public sector? And are multilaterals good at this? Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I often find that when you talk to people about the role that bureaucrats might play in solutions for countries, people are either a bit dismissive or they don't fully understand the, um, the hard work that the public sector does. Ultimately, without the public sector there to be able to support the delivery of government finance services, you know, the services will never happen. You have to have those country systems in place to be able to absorb funds, whether they're coming through revenue collection by the government or from third-party sources, whether that's through grants or borrowing or bilateral loans or ODA, and then take those funds and use them to achieve the overall national objective. The change agents that are able to do that are your everyday public sector workers. Like they're the ones who actually do it. And so it's really important to be able to understand that the role they play, but more importantly, when in an emergency situation, those who are needed for particular roles at a particular time, and also um, what you need to do to be able to protect your workforce. There's been lots of discussions particularly in the last couple of years when we think about climate change and um, a lot of the crises and emergencies that countries face, there have been quite a bit of thought that's been given to who in the um, public sector are critical personnel that need to be coming into the office and then need to be hooked in and be able to deliver on things in the short term. What we've found with COVID being a pandemic as compared to, say, a natural disaster, the frontline workers that we need to be out doing their job are somewhat different. So really, it's kind of trying to compare apples and oranges. And I think that we're learning a lot from this. We're also learning um, about continuity of the public sector and the public service during times of crisis. We're also learning about how we need to be using for fast-tracking the use of, of technologies to ensure greater agility and connectivity for public sector workers so that even if you're having things such as a lockdown, that you can have your public sector workers working in isolation, but still being able to be connected and making sure that the arms of government continue to move. We're seeing that the centre of government seems to be able to do that in many of the countries that we talk to, 
but some of the other aspects of a really strong governance ecosystem, even during an emergency, have become a bit of an afterthought. And here I think about the internal control and the accountability aspects. So you need to be able to have public sector workers delivering services, particularly healthcare workers, but also you need to be able to have the audit office be able to be conducting audits. You need to have mechanisms in place to be able to capture and record expenditures so that it can be checked by the audit office almost in real time. You need to be able to have a legislative body that can meet even if virtually to be able to approve any supplementary expenditure or oversee efforts for reconstruction to ensure that you're building core resilience, not just putting things back in place as to what was there before. So I think that there's lots that we've learned around COVID up to date, but there's still a lot more for us to learn. And it really has acted as a bit of a stress test when we think about these country systems, how each country is responding. And it does highlight some of the weaknesses in different country systems in some of the countries. And I think that provides a bit of a roadmap kind of areas to focus on. I think that that's a really helpful segue of of thinking about what recovery might look like in a developing context and how you go about thinking through recovery with all of its complexities, whether it's an established democracy, an emerging one, whether it's an established economy or an emerging one. I know you emphasized heavily, Mitch, considerations of the bureaucracy, considerations of things that we might take for granted here, right? The, the ability to telework and to keep a bureaucracy running or to keep a legislature running. But I'd really love for you to tell us about your lessons from having been on the ground for so many years. When you get to a place that's either facing an emergency or recovering from an emergency, can you highlight a few lessons for us? Where do you start? What do you do? Who are you talking to and why? The response is different depending upon the country and and depending upon the crisis. There's not one model that fits all situations. But there are some general sort of approaches or lessons that we've seen around the globe. The first is a health crisis going on. We need to flatten the curve, whichever country it might be, in order to be able to move on. I think that there has been a very strong focus on the health aspects by all countries and almost, I would say, well and truly over 50%, more like even up to 100% of focus has been on just making sure that the health systems are ready to be able to absorb, not absorb, but actually do what they need to do. You know, that includes making sure that there is enough resources, there's enough beds, as well as public education campaigns and things like that. In parallel to this, because the response has been to basically stop almost all economic activity in most countries, it has then acted as a catalyst for this economic tsunami that we're facing. And so it's important there to ensure the most vulnerable are looked after. So social protection is a critical aspect of the response. So for those who can't go to work, for those who were vulnerable in the first place, a crisis or a pandemic such as this just exacerbates the situation further. So there needs to be policies in place for some sort of social protection, at least in the short term. Some countries are kind of getting to this point now and others are still a ways away. There needs to be thinking about how do you come out of the crisis? Like what does this recovery look like? And it's one thing that's becoming clear is that it's not a process that kind of bookends each other, but rather both the health and social protection aspects are going to have to continue right through, at very least until the vaccine is found. But then those economic aspects kind of overlaying that. So governments are going to be able, and public sector employees are going to have to be able to be thinking of both simultaneously as we move through this border crisis and move into recovery. 
But recovery needs to be about not just trying to get us back to where we were before. The recovery is an opportunity to try and ensure that our economies and our countries are, are far more resilient to this sort of global event than they were previously. I think it does shine a spotlight on the need for better health services in all countries globally. But a lot of this does focus on when you talk about resilience and recovery, we also need to be able to spare economic activity again, which is going to be difficult because until there's a vaccine, human interface and interaction is going to be different. So a lot of smart people at the moment are trying to work out how, how you can bring those two things together, spur activity in the economy, but without actually increasing a threat from, from the pandemic. But finally, and, and the area that I guess I worry about the most is that, and this is not just for developing countries, this is for all countries, there's been a need to increase spending exponentially in some countries. It's necessary now, but it does mean that once we're kind of through kind of the, the pandemic, we need to be able to, A, account for how that money is being used and if it was used appropriately. But secondly, how to manage the debt. Many, many countries in the world um, have such high levels of debt to start with. It was an area that had been flagged for the developing South the last couple of years as being a growing problem. So those issues haven't gone away, but the amount of activity within the economy over the next couple of years is going to be diminished. And so working out how to better manage that debt that's been accrued and what developed countries can do as well to be able to support that. One of the initial comments that I made about COVID being different in that it really has touched all four corners of the globe. When we're talking about debt and we're talking about how to be able to kind of ignite development again in many of these countries that have been really badly hit in the developing South, the partners that would normally step in, such as Canada and kind of the other bilaterals, as well as international financial institutions and multilaterals, are going to be somewhat hamstrung because they're also going to be trying to manage their own debt. They're also going to be trying to stimulate their own economies to be able to move from recovery into positive growth. And so it's a situation where there is a bit of an imbalance about who it is that's going to be able to kind of help who. And I think that, you know, it presents a, a question for us globally. So do we work together to be able to find a solution around this? Or is it just a matter of letting every country go off by themselves? What I think is really quite important about the way you're framing the response is that when you're on the ground, absolutely, it's about addressing the immediate concerns, which of course in this instance is health. But when you're on the ground, you're also able to identify a lot of those gaps and a lot of the problem points that are perhaps evident there in the immediate term, but that also might need correcting over the longer term. And what I'm hearing from you is that that question of resiliency, be it economically in health systems, will be absolutely important around the world for established and developing countries. But perhaps the biggest problem of them all will absolutely be debt and the capacity to manage debt and what that means for different countries, for their infrastructure, and certainly for the health of their overall economies and the way they're actually able to serve or, or perhaps in some instances not serve their own citizens. Mitch, can you help us uh, frame out perhaps what are the regions or what are the countries that you think will need the most support going forward? And where do you think multilaterals or perhaps even a middle powers can have the greatest impact? I guess you could look at it from two criteria there. But there's those countries that have been hit hardest by the pandemic. And then there's those countries that may not have been hit as hard, but nonetheless didn't have the capacity to be able to manage the pandemic as it happened. 
So in terms of kind of looking forward, they would be the countries that it would be important to kind of look at and focus on and see what can be done. I think it's a moving target at the moment because it's, um, we're definitely not out of the woods. At the moment, it really is still in a kind of a, a crisis mode and all efforts are being made globally to be able to flatten the curve. And when we were able to do that and then hopefully a vaccine, then we'd be in a much better position to be able to see which areas or which countries are going to need the greatest support. Traditionally, different countries have different, from the developed country perspective, have different priorities and perspectives. And I think that this is where kind of the bilaterals do have a role to play. I think at the multilateral and the IFI level, all countries have a say and are able to influence the global response. But in those circumstances, it's a matter of a global negotiation around where resourcing and effort and focus goes. If there are bilaterals that have a particular interest in a region, then they also have the opportunity through their overseas development assistance to be able to directly support the recovery in regions that are of greatest importance to them. For instance, I know in Canada, the Caribbean is a region that Canada works very closely with. I know I'm Australian by birth, and I know that working in the Pacific is of high importance for Australia. So you'll find that there would be a lot of bilateral assistance probably would by the medium-tier developed countries would be focused on those regions where they feel as if they can make the greatest impact. But I think that the lesson from all of this is that all these pieces need to come together and there definitely has to be some coordination. After all this is said and done, there's just not going to be as much resources as there used to be. And so using it smart, making sure we're using it to be able to build resilient economies and countries and systems and using it in a way that there's no duplication is going to be key. Thank you for that, Mitch. So I think a lot of work for countries everywhere that lies ahead, certainly the importance of the regional focus, right, in building up neighborhoods, if you will, of support and of capacity. And I think it's, you know, really interesting that you raise the examples of middle powers like Canada and Australia that might have roles or that should have roles going forward from a bilateral perspective to work with neighbors and, and to work with those countries and with which they already have sound strong relationships in an effort to extend those resources and to make sure that there's, um, you know, coordination and certainly collaboration as the world moves, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later, gradually um, toward recovery. Mitch, thank you very much for making the time to share your great expertise on governance with us today and certainly bringing in that multilateral perspective that's been coming to the fore with the global responses and certainly global efforts we're seeing I'm in response to COVID-19. Also, I'm sure we can expect as we face recovery and mounting debt levels together. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Helena. And um, congratulations on the recovery project. Keep up the good work. Thanks very much, Mitch.